This is the Skeptic Squared Podcast. A safe place to make light of sacred things. My name is Matt. And I'm Corinne. And in this program, we will be discussing current events related to religion, atheism, and skepticism. Our goal is not to insult believers, although that will probably happen from time to time, but rather to share our point of view on these topics in a way which will benefit and entertain others. Or maybe we just want to stroke our own egos. You decide. to the Skeptic Squared podcast. Today is Sunday, August 28th, 2016, and with me is my wife, Corinne. Hello. How are you doing? I'm fine. Good. I'm a little chilly. A little chilly. <laughs> We've had a, a busy morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, I guess let's just get right into it. We don't really have any announcements or anything, so... Nope. Um, so, I have an update on an article that you covered... Uh, several months ago. Okay. Um, do you want to give us a, a little bit of background on that article that, that you shared? The this is the, the Oregon bakery one? Yeah. So a bakery in Oregon refused to um, do a wedding cake for a lesbian couple once they discovered that they were lesbians. And right. um, the couple filed charges against them, yada, yada, yada. They were fined. Their bakery basically closed down. Mm-hmm. And they were very upset. <laughs> yeah. Saying that their rights were being infringed upon and it was their bakery, so they should be able to choose who they serve, yada, yada, yada. Right. They wanted the right to discriminate. Yeah. And um, one of the things that uh, that you mentioned when you talked about it last time was that the uh, the bakery actually published personal information about the couple. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah. Which is why it was so um, upsetting. For yeah. so many people. Um, and that's why so many people were uh, coming down on them and, mm-hmm. and uh, trying to, you know, have this case go right. forward. Um, and in response to that, um, these these people, these uh, the owners of this bakery, um, set up a GoFundMe fundraiser thing, right? And, and they said that they were being discriminated against for their religious beliefs and, mm-hmm. like, the, the gays were coming after them and all that kind of thing. And so their initial fine, the, the one that the court gave them, um, was $135,000. And their fundraiser mm-hmm. brought, it, brought in more than um, 350000 Awesome. Great for them. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess bigotry pays. Right. Um, (laughs) So they were able to reopen their bakery? Um, I I assume they did, but that's not what the update I have um, is about. So they feel, or I I shouldn't say they feel remorse. They feel compelled to show that they feel remorse. (laughs) Um, So it's the hollow kind. (laughs) Right. I don't know how sincere this actually is. Um. But they, they've made the news again, and uh, this is uh, an article from Hemant Mehta, the friendly okay. atheist. Um, so, of course, there's tons of citations for all of this. But um, So they, uh, they found 10 LGBT rights groups in the area that they wanted to send apology cakes to. They didn't send an apology cake to the couple? No. <laughs> At least not according to this. Okay. Um, th- this is just about the LGBT groups. Um, so, the, so the cakes themselves are not 
terribly impressive. It just is a white cake with like a red heart that says, we really do love you. Um, which <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's kind of nauseating in and of itself, but you know, fine. It's, it's a gesture. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more of a gesture, but the, uh, the kicker here what mm-hmm. is what was included with the cakes. Oh, okay. So it wasn't just about the cakes or okay. the apology. Um, so I'll just read this little, uh, snippet from the article. Okay. Our purpose is to express our love for them as a Christian. We don't hate them. We also included in the package the movie Audacity. Oh, no way! (laughs) (laughs) You've got to be kidding me. She goes on, I feel it was a well-done movie that shows that being a Christian, what being a, a Christian is about. My hope is that they will watch it and maybe just understand our heart. We want to show them that it's not about about not serving them it's about not being able to partake in an event is that the movie is is that the the message of the movie audacity i've got a i tried to block that movie out okay so so we we did we did a a review of this movie for this podcast Uh um, a few months ago and the movie is about how homosexuality is a choice about oh, how you can right. change your sexual orientation mm-hmm. and it's basically Ray Comfort uh, going around and street contacting with people um, to convince them oh that was part of that movie yeah I forgot yeah, about yeah. that part and he's trying to convince them that they, they can change their sexual orientation like he's talking to a few few of the people that he talks to in the movie mm-hmm. are actual uh, homosexuals right and uh, a few other people he talks to about an incident like the one with the bakery, right? Mm. Um, and he convinces them that the the gays were in the wrong and, and that they should be more accommodating to the people who have different religious beliefs and all that kind of thing. You know, that's right. Yeah, but Sorry. but the the point of the movie is not um, about being able to not participate in an event. I mean, that's one section of one conversation that he has with a girl. But like you talked about, actually. Um, I, th- I think you, you brought it up again. Like when we did the, uh, the review of that, that movie, mm-hmm. you talked about the fact that these people, these shop owners, were harassing this couple. Right. Like they were posting personal information about mm-hmm. them on their website or Which their Facebook page. Which led other people to harass them. Exactly. Like, like contact yeah. information and stuff like that. Yeah. Like that was a, a major part of the, uh, the conversation that was left out. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and, and that was the biggest reason why they pressed charges against them. Right. And they should. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But even so, like, it goes back to that whole idea. Like, do you really have a right to discriminate against other people for something that they have no control over? Seriously, when you have have control over what you do? (laughs) Like, like why? Like, let's say that they didn't actually harass this couple and send out their personal information on the Internet. Um, Like, they still shouldn't be able to decline uh, their business. No. You know? Because it's a public business. Right. That's the thing that they don't understand. It's right. a if, public business. If right. it was a privatized business, then yeah, they have the right to discriminate. But it's public. Right. It's a public shop. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's different f- from somebody just doing it freelance from their own Right. Kitchen. If it was based out of their home, yeah. it would be different. Yeah. But the fact that they are, are, are a company that is serving the public yeah. means that they need to actually serve the public. Mm-hmm. You know, it would be 
just as egregious if they were declining to serve um, African Americans uh, their cakes. You know, right. It would be just as bad if it was you know another religious group, like if they didn't want to mm-hmm. do a Jewish cake or mm-hmm. something like that. You know, Jews like, probably wouldn't want their cake anyway. <laughs> just saying. <laughs> it's probably not kosher. <laughs> Maybe. I don't, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just saying. You know. I know. Like, discrimination is discrimination. Yeah. And if it's something that uh, a person doesn't have any control over, if it's one of those protected groups that the government has said is a protected class, Mm -hmm. then a public company should not be able to discriminate. Right. You know, religion can discriminate. But but, it's private. But it's private. Quote, unquote. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Exactly. And so, yeah, and it, it brings into, you know, it brings into the conversation this whole idea of, like, um, like Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A and the way that they have uh, discriminated against people of different religious beliefs. With their uh, health insurance policies and yeah, stuff. Yeah, health insurance policies. And, yeah. uh, or like at the um, the Ark Encounter, the, the new theme park that came up in Kentucky, Ken mm-hmm. Ham. Like he has his employees sign a waiver saying that they'll basically follow All his right. version of Christianity. Yeah. Um, but he wants to be counted as... I don't know. He has like this weird idea of what his Ark Encounter um, exhibit is like is um, in terms of like um, like he, he wants to have religious ex- exemptions so that he can dodge certain taxes and so that he can cr- um, create contracts obligating his employees to follow certain guidelines. Um, but he also wants the government to um, you know pay thousands and thousands of dollars. Um, to build a road to his exhibits, right. <laughs> you know, like use taxpayer yeah. money for various things like that. You know, he wants to have it in this middle ground that doesn't actually exist. Mm-hmm. Like if he wants to be a religious organization, fine, but you have to actually follow those guidelines. You know? Right. Like he wants to be it to be both, mm-hmm. you know. Anyway, so that's what I have for <laughs> the update on that. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, and definitely poor taste right audacity right <laughs> i know that was an awful movie all i remember of that movie really is the terrible jokes mm-hmm. and the bank and the robbery in the <laughs> gas station right <laughs> uh, that guy's, so dumb that guy's reasoning for for why he stepped up to save the day was uh he was a Christian, and he knows where he's going after he's di- he, he dies. Right. But the other people in the room are, are not necessarily Christian, and there's the gay couple there. Mm-hmm. So so they need more time on Earth, so they can't die yet. You know, Because if they die now, then God's going to send them to hell. Yeah. So that's a nice message. Super nice. <laughs> Thanks, God. So, another um, bit of news that came out this week. Um. Let's let's start. I have, I have two pieces that I want to talk about with this. Uh, first is a new development in Norway. Okay. So in Norway, from what I understand, I, I've read various articles. Norway is is one of these European countries where anybody that's born a citizen of that country is automatically um, a member of their uh, church of the Norway Church. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a couple other other. Uh, uh, countries in Europe, I think that that are also like that, where they just kind of are automatically members. Okay. Um, and it's it's been kind of a process uh, um, to try to get out of it in the past, but this week the Catholic Church of Norway 
um, set up a way for people to um, withdraw their membership online. Awesome. Um, which is super quick and easy. And uh, yeah. And as a result, mm-hmm. in so the first week, um, the, this article says 11,000 people resigned from the church. The highest one that I saw from another article was 15,000. Wow. What's the population of Norway? That's a good question. It doesn't say in this article. But that happened in one week? In the first week, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, kind of puts into perspective the, the, this, uh, you know, idea of Mormons uh, resigning from the Mormon church um, and the arduous process that that is and how we have, like, mass resignations. We have to have lawyers involved. And, mm-hmm. and uh, the big one that happened last November that we went to had... at most, I think it was 2,500 people there, mm-hmm. but over the course of like those first few months, um, that, that lawyer um, said that he um, had had several thousand people um, resign through his site. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in the first week, 11,000, 15,000 people. That's crazy. That's insane. <laughs> Do you think more Mormons would resign right now if they had the option to just click a button and resign? Probably. I don't know if it would be on the, the same scale. Right. I don't think it'd be on the same scale either. But Because um, a lot of Mormons that are inactive still consider themselves to be Mormon. They still right. consider themselves believers mm-hmm. in some sense. Um, I've had a few conversations with people like that, and it always just puzzles the crap out of me. Like, I, I don't get it. Like, if you really believe that the Mormon church is true, then shouldn't you act like it? Shouldn't you go to church? Right. Shouldn't you pay tithing and participate in all the activities as boring as they are, you know, like this whole like middle ground thing just doesn't make any sense to me. Um, so the, uh, the second thing that I wanted to talk about in relation to this okay. is a new article that came out this week. Um, uh, let's see, this is from Forbes, Forbes.com. And this guy, Niall McCarthy. Niall. Weird first name. It's not Niles. No, it's N-I-A-L-L. Huh. It could be Neil. Could be Neil. Anyway, so he's he's basically um, writing this article based on um, a survey done by Pew Research, um, which we, we've done stuff from Pew before. Right. Like they're, they're, they're pretty good about the way that they do surveys and, and keeping it um, scientifically sound. Um, anyway, so they have a new survey that, that uh, was conducted. And uh, it's, it's concerning um, why some Americans turn their backs on religion. That's what it's about. So it's asking people about why they stop going to church, why they don't consider themselves religious, and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So we don't have to spend a ton of time on it, but there were a few points in this infographic that they had that I thought were worth mentioning. So um, let's see. So reasons for disaffiliating among those who were raised in religious households. So these are people who were raised religious who left the religion that they were raised in. Okay. So... You and I. Yeah. Um, So there's four main reasons. And then they're all kind of broken down into subcategories. Okay. So we'll hit the the four main reasons first. So the biggest one, 49%, 
is that they don't believe, which makes sense. Right. <laughs> um, the second one at 20% is they dislike organized religion. So they don't necessarily not believe, they just don't like organized religion. Um, 18% say that they are religiously unsure or undecided, so people that would self-identify as agnostics. Mm. And then 10% are inactive believers. That one I thought was interesting because um, Mormons um, have a retention rate that's really low right now. Um, In the United States, it's around 40 to 50%. Um, and outside of the country, outside of the U.S., it's, lower. it's more like 20 to 25 percent, maybe up to 30, depending on the country. But like in South America, like Chile, I know is really low. It's about 20 huh. percent. Um, and so there's a lot of assumptions that Mormons will make about that. Uh, you know what, like, like why people will join the church and then just fall away, um, especially after the first year. And uh, and it's kind of assumed that um, a lot of them still believe or that a lot of them never really believed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find it interesting, according to this survey at least, that the inactive believer, the people who really believe but just stop going, is only 10%. It only makes up 10%. Mm, okay. you know? So it kind of flies into the face of the idea that the people that are just not going to church, that just stop after the first year, right, still believe. Anyway. Yeah. yeah. That they that they would still believe, right? Um, you know, so I, I guess if anything, they never really believed. But uh, anyway, um, so breaking it down a little bit further, so going back to the big category, don't believe forty nine percent. So thirty six percent are disenchanted or don't believe. Okay. Seven percent are not interested in or don't need religion. Seven percent say that their views evolved, which is kind of vague. And 1%, I thought this was interesting, went through a crisis of faith. Hmm. I would have expected that to be a lot higher. Maybe it kind of depends on how they um, define crisis of faith. Right. Um, Does it say, like, where or who they surveyed? Like, how big was the survey? Um, Let me see. What demographic they surveyed? Because I can see crisis of faith being a larger percentage in a more fundamental demographic. Mm-hmm. But if it's pretty broad, it, I guess it kind of makes sense. Um, well, I mean, without going into the actual Pew article, mm-hmm. um, it just says that this is a survey done in, among U.S. adults. <laughs> so. Okay. But, I mean, maybe part of my perception is skewed um, because... You know, having left the Mormon Church, Mormon I, I consider the Mormon Church to be a fundamentalist Christian yeah. church. Oh, totally. Um, and so it's very common for people who, to leave the Mormon Church after they go through some kind of faith crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and, and that was my experience. That was your experience. Mm-hmm. That's the experience of lots of people on like the ex-Mormon Reddit page yeah. and, and different forums and things. Um, but, you know... Mormons are a very small percentage of the overall population in the United States. Mm-hmm. A bigger population um, would be like, say, the Catholics, who don't make any real you know, waves in the water. When they leave the, the Catholic Church, they just stop going. Right. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, so that's what like, I was 
alluding to. Yeah. Is that it probably depends more on if it was a specific demographic or mm-hmm. if it was just a general survey. Right. So, because yeah. if they took that survey in like the ex Mormon, it would be a lot higher. Right. And a lot of those, I think, kind of feed into a crisis of faith. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you may answer that I just don't believe anymore without thinking that it was a crisis of faith. Right. Like I would have. I, I I could have selected any of those exactly. Um, kind of depending on the day. So um, probably depends on how the question was formed and stuff. So yeah, my guess is that it's probably a higher percentage overall. Crisis of faith for for uh, fundamentalist groups. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other category dislike they dislike organized religion. Um, so that's twenty percent. I feel like inactives could fall into that category too, though. That they don't like organized religion? Mm -hmm. It's like you were saying with, like, Mormons that say they still believe, but they Mm -hmm. don't attend all the activities. They don't pay tithing and stuff. Right. It could be in large part due to the organization of the church. They don't like being told necessarily what to do, but they believe in the basic principles of the church. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. But that, that probably does affect some people. Again, I just have a really hard time wrapping my head around that type of reasoning. Um, maybe it's just because my experience with the Mormon Church was very um, hardlined. You know, yeah, like we were all about following all the rules and making sure that we did everything that the church asked us to do, right. and uh, fulfilling all of our obligations and all the activities and meetings and all of that, all of that stuff. Um, but you kind of went inactive before you transitioned out, right? And in that inactivity, yeah. would you have been able to say that you still believed I would, at all? I would have at the time, but yeah. looking back, looking back, I probably stopped believing before that. Yeah, and I but feel I like have it. a lot of people that are in that inactive category uh-huh. are more in the position that you're in. Mm-hmm. They may not ever get to where you are now, but I think that's kind of where the inactivity comes from. Mm-hmm. They have been taught their entire lives that it's true, and so mm-hmm. they want to still believe that it's true. But another part of them is like, I'd, but I'd rather be doing these other things, and I don't want to no. participate in the organization itself. So they're kind of caught in the limbo of cognitive yeah. dissonance. Yeah. yeah. I think that, I mean, obviously that's not going to be everyone, but I think in large part that's probably what it is. Yeah. Because before I met you, like if I had never met you, I would probably be in that area of Still my believe, life right now. just not wanting to go. Not wanting to go, not participating all the time, going to Sunday meetings, but not like participating in my callings. Like, I mean, I was yeah. already there when I met you, you know? Yeah. I just wouldn't have considered myself inactive because I was still attending all of my meetings, but I think mm-hmm. eventually it would have tapered off. Yeah. You know. Okay, so uh, breaking down this category, dislike organized religion. So 15% are anti-institutional religion. 4% um, religion focuses on power and politics. So they say that they don't like the fact that religion focuses on power and politics. Mm-hmm. And 1% um, say that religion causes conflict. That's why they don't like it. Only 1%? Um, again, I think that these are just kind of the main reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of like when John DeLynn did his big survey of uh, um, why Mormons leave the Mormon church. And a lot of the, th- the things in there could apply to anybody, you know, at various stages um, but yeah, some of the ones that seemed like they would be a little bit higher up on the food chain were a lot lower, um, just because people had to pick one, okay. you know? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. 
So I'm guessing that there was a little, a little bit of that in this. Um, the next category, 18% religiously unsure or undecided. Okay, so 7% say that they are unaffiliated but religious. 6% um, seeking, they, they consider themselves seeking or open-minded. So I guess the New Agers, maybe? Or, I don't know. Or they don't want to subscribe to any one religion and so they participate in a bunch of them. Oh, maybe that. 3% say they are spiritual but not religious. And 2% are uncertain about beliefs. Okay. They all kind of sound the same. Yeah. Um, but I guess they're subcategories, so they're supposed to same right. sound basically the same. Right. But, I mean, one of the things about this whole conversation is that um, being an atheist and being an agnostic are not mutually exclusive. You can actually be both. So the people that um, would consider themselves undecided, for instance, very often call themselves agnostics. Mm-hmm. Um when, in fact, when it comes to belief in God, they would probably, in philosophical terms, be considered atheists. They just don't identify as such because culturally or colloquially, we've put agnostics as like this middle ground, mm-hmm. you know, like right. in between belief and disbelief. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't know. I tend to side with um, Matt Dillahunty in his um, definition where he says that anybody who believes that a god exists is a theist, and anybody who who doesn't fit that category in any sort of way uh-huh. um, is an atheist. Hmm. So if you believe you're a theist, if you don't, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, you're an atheist. Okay. You know, even if you're just unsure, right. if you have, if you don't have an active belief in a god, you cannot claim to be a theist. Therefore, you're an uh, atheist. Okay. See. So, mm-hmm. That makes like, sense. Yeah. Um. Okay, the last category, 10% inactive believer, okay? So 8% are non-practicing and 2% are too busy. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Too busy. They're just too busy. Can't be bothered. (laughs) But again, it's like that whole idea, if you really believe that this is true, um, shouldn't you make time? I don't know. I think that's kind of like the Pascal's wager. You know, they say they believe in it just in case it's real, but uh-huh. they're not going to make time for it because they have better things to do. Yeah. It's better to believe. I think it shows that they really don't believe. The fact that they don't probably. make time for it. Yeah, that I don't know. they don't take it seriously. But they still probably have, like, conversations or do things that are influenced by believing in some kind of a deity. Does that make sense? Okay, so they're not like they're spiritual or something like that. They're but not they so, don't. They're not so interested in the routine of religion, right? But sometimes, in certain circumstances, they find it convenient to believe. Right, they'll still throw up a prayer to God if they need something, mm-hmm. or you know, it's like, oh, please bless my sick child, something like that. You know, right. it's more a belief out of convenience than a. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, um, that's all I got for this. Okay. Um, Uh, You want to do one of your articles? Sure. Um, So this one, let me pull it up so I can actually read the title. Okay, so in France, there's been this whole thing about banning burkinis from beaches. I think more particularly in Nice. A burkini? What is a burkini? Basically, it's just a skin-tight burka. 
<laughs> a, a burqa inside a wetsuit. Yeah, it's a wetsuit with a <laughs> headpiece. <laughs> yeah, which is basically a wetsuit. <laughs> yes. Um, so this article, it's called The Burkini Bikini False Equivalence and Your Disproportionate Outrage. And it's <laughs> written by Nietzsche's Breaches. <laughs> Nietzsche's Breaches? Breaches. <laughs> yeah. So the, um, this lady who wrote it um, grew up um, in, like, the Muslim faith. Okay. So she had to wear a hijab and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. She did that, you know, from her childhood until I think she was about 15 years old. Um, but anyway, so this... You found this article on your Facebook page. A friend of yours had liked it. And we um, saw the picture, thought it was very poignant, and, you know, laughed right. a little bit about it. So the picture, it's a cartoon of um, a woman, a blonde woman in a, in a bikini, and another woman in, you know, the full-bodied hijab. Mm-hmm. And the woman in the burkini says, everything covered but her eyes. What a cruel male-dominated culture. And she's looking at the other lady. Mm-hmm. And then the hijab-wearing lady is looking at the burkini, b- bikini lady and says, <laughs> nothing covered but her eyes. What a cruel male-dominated culture. Right. And um, so this author actually does not like this picture. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, basically, she thinks it's a fa- she says that it's a false equivalent. Of the issue at hand. Okay. Um, because women that wear bikinis are not forced to wear bikinis. It's not part of the social structure. Their marriage ability mm-hmm. doesn't depend on it. Their safety doesn't depend on it. Right. Things like that. Um, and so comparing a woman in a bikini to a woman in a burkini or a burqa or a hijab right. or whatever, it's like it's not the same thing because that other woman's <clears throat> safety does depend on it. Her livelihood is revolved around it, you know. Gotcha. Um, which I thought was interesting. It shed a little different perspective point, on the yeah. picture. But I, but I think the point of the picture is to just point out that uh, in both cases, um, it's not really the woman's choice necessarily. Like it's it, with the, the in the case of the bikini, um, there's a lot of cultural stuff that goes along with it, and like expectations of you know what a woman should look like and how they should act and and that kind of stuff. Um, you know. Uh, um, Growing up in Seattle, I can remember a few instances of girls being picked on by other girls because they were uncomfortable wearing a two-piece swimsuit. And, girls you know, are just that kind of awful anyway. Right, like. right. Exactly. And, and But the, the point is that it's not, um, you know, the, the woman's choice. Like, she isn't making the choice because it's what she wants to do because that's what she's comfortable doing. It's because there's expectations from other people, like berating her kind of thing. That's kind of how on some level, but I, I still, I actually, I side more with her now on this because after her explanation, after her explanation, just Mm -hmm. because, I mean, she like that, a girl that's getting picked on by another girl that's wearing a bikini and she doesn't feel comfortable. Like it's still ultimately her choice, Mm -hmm. her safety, her overall safety doesn't necessarily revolve around that. She can still decide if she wants to wear a two piece, a tankini, a Mm -hmm. one piece, a full body wetsuit, just shorts and a t-shirt. Like it's ultimately her choice and whatever she wants or feels comfortable with. Right. Which um, is which is what this whole thing should be about is women need to have the choice. Right. And so she I didn't understand a lot of what she said because I think there's um a little bit of a language barrier. Like mm-hmm. a lot of the grammar didn't make a whole lot of sense. I I think what she is saying though is that women that are wearing these burkinis mm-hmm. are choosing to wear the burkinis. Like okay. it 
they can choose to either remain at home mm-hmm. or they can go out in public and wear the bikini and still swim around. Like the women right. that you're seeing are the ones that do have the choice. It's the women that you don't see that are the ones that are being really oppressed and are being forced to wear things like that. Mm. I, I mean, I can't speak to anything that she claimed right. or says about it, but, but I, it makes sense. It makes sense. It makes sense because you would expect um, somebody in a really oppressive situation to not even, not even be allowed to go to the beach. Exactly, and and she goes on to say that um, this ban on the burkini mm. is oppressing these women from another side at the same time, right? Um, because they're using this opportunity to go to the beach to socialize, to be out in public, to be with other people that may not necessarily share their same views. But by banning the burkini, they can no longer go out and swim. They can't participate in these social activities. And now they're forced to stay at home because they can't wear them in like public universities or schools either. So, Oh really? Yeah. Okay. I don't know if that's necessarily just in France, but she mentions that Mm -hmm. they can't go out, they can't go to public schools or universities in the hijab either. Well, I've, I've heard, I don't know, over the years, France has been kind of cracking down on mm-hmm. the hijab and stuff. Right. Um, things about like being able to like see a person's face, mm-hmm. for instance, which is a matter of security, which on some level I understand, but it's, it, I don't know, it's a s- sticky situation when you have a woman who is essentially being forced to wear this thing, mm-hmm. you know. And the the alternative to her wearing this in public is that she doesn't go in public. Exactly. You know. And that, I think, is the big thing that she's focusing on in this article, too, mm-hmm. is that these women may want to be able to make a change mm-hmm. within their community. Like, maybe they don't enjoy wearing the hijab, but at the moment, it's what they have to do. But if they're being forced to remain at home because they can't wear it out in public, mm. they're not getting the education that they need or the socialization that they need in order to right. start making these changes. So it's just creating a bigger separation between the secular world of France and the more you know religious right. aspect of the Muslim world. So yeah. I thought it was... I thought she brought up some interesting points. Yeah, and it should be noted, though, that this is a really difficult situation because right now France is... Um, being attacked um, pretty often. Like, mm-hmm. it's happening, uh, what is it, every few months now, um, some terrorist Muslim group attacks somebody in France and kills dozens to a couple hundred people. Right. You know? But I think, I mean, it should also be noted, too, that these are men committing these crimes. They're that's not true. women in yeah. hijabs. <laughs> yeah. You know? I mean, that's not to say that they would never do it, but mm-hmm. the majority of these criminal acts are being perpetuated by the men. Yeah. Well, I mean... And they can blend in so much easier. Yeah. They don't necessarily have to wear anything on their heads. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they can wear shorts and a t-shirt and blend in perfectly with the white males. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Um, so. Anything else on that? No, I just wanted to bring up those points. I thought they were salient and... Made me okay. rethink that picture. Yeah. I still think it's an entertaining <laughs> picture, but... Well, it's thought-provoking. It's thought-provoking, and yeah, but I think you need to read the article, too, and be like, oh, there's actually more to that picture than you see the on eye. the surface. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So. Um, so the next thing that I have um, won't necessarily take a very long time to talk about. Um, do you remember a while back when... Um, these two journalists for a TV show, uh, news agency, news mm. agency were shot and yeah. killed live uh-huh. on television. Yeah. 
Well, the the person who um, committed the crime um, came out and said that one of the reasons that he did this was because Jehovah told him to. Right. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to necessarily talk about the specifics in this particular um, situation. Just the fact that he says that Jehovah told him to do it. Like, he's talking to Jehovah. Mm -hmm. Okay. And... Well, the thing that I wanted to talk about is that this isn't the only time that this kind of thing has happened. You have Andrea Yates, who who we've mentioned before. She Mm -hmm. drowned her four kids um, because she believed that it would save them from going to hell and that she would go to hell in their place. Mm -hmm. Um, And that Christians, based on Christian theology, she was right. Um, There was the guy who shot up the um, Planned Parenthood clinic um, a few months ago, also claiming to, uh, you know, have God on his side. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Do you remember if he ever said that God talked to him? I don't remember, but he was actually mentally unstable, so it's okay. a little bit different. Okay. But but that's the next thing, is how do you distinguish between someone who talks to God and is crazy versus someone who talks to God and, and is insane? <laughs> right. Like, what is the difference? Um, because Andrea Yates, part of her sentence was to go to a... Uh, Facility for the criminally insane or something like that, right? Some kind of asylum. Um, and that was based on the idea that her um, her attorneys proposed that she was insane. Mm-hmm. She did this because she was crazy. Mm-hmm. Never mind the fact that theologically and doctrinally speaking, she was correct. Right. The fact that she received a message from God to do something, mm-hmm. um, to do something atrocious, Um that's enough to convince the average believer and the average person that they are insane. Mm-hmm. Okay, but what if God, the God in their head, doesn't tell them to do something that's um, violent towards another person? Does that make them any less insane? If God doesn't tell them? Yeah, but they're still telling them to do stuff. But God is still telling them to do yeah. stuff? Like, instead of God telling me to kill you, so like, God tells me like to the give you a sandwich. Church. Did, did you yeah, yeah, God tells you to give me a sandwich. Where? I would still think you were crazy, but accept the sandwich. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, um, I, to- I do see what you're saying. It's mm-hmm. like, I don't know. I think on some level, they are unstable. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same as, like, say, the girls that you work with. With, mm-hmm. like, actual traumas that have, like, mentally broken mm-hmm. them down. Or so what is the difference? I don't know. Are so, you going to reveal that to me? Well, I, I don't have a good answer. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't have a good answer. Um, I, I think that the difference lies somewhere in the fact that uh, religions, um, again, going back to my experience with Mormonism... Um, Mormons will teach you that your conscience is God, mm-hmm. that the good feelings that you have are oh. inspired by the spirit mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like that somewhere in there is the difference. Like there, it's a mislabeling. Mm-hmm. Okay. But religion doesn't give you a good way of distinguishing between the labels. Mm-hmm. So you have somebody who's insane, who's hearing voices telling them to do things. And mm-hmm. they think, holy crap, this is exactly what uh, I heard in the pulpit, you know, uh, on 
you know, Sunday meetings and stuff, like God is talking to me, like they're telling me to do things. They're telling me to think certain things Mm -hmm. and all that, you know, versus somebody who um, has a similar kind of experience, but coming at it from, well, I feel bad when I steal. So Mm -hmm. that's God telling me I shouldn't steal. I feel bad when I swear. So I shouldn't swear. Mm -hmm. You know, like that's the approach that Mormons take. Mm -hmm. Right. But, uh, like really what's going on, at least the way that I can understand it in a secular sense is that they have conditioned themselves through psychological conditioning, like, you know, Pavlov's dogs. Mm. We've talked about that before. Um, you know, where they train themselves to think F word equals spirit leaving. Uh So that's bad. F word equals bad. F word equals bad. If you know, over and over and Mm -hmm. over again, they condition themselves psychologically so Mm -hmm. that whenever they hear the F word, they automatically associate it with bad feelings. And lo and behold, whenever they hear the F word, they feel bad. Okay. And then they identify that as the spirit of God leaving their presence, mm-hmm. you know, what, regardless of whether or not they are the one who says it, mm-hmm. if they just hear it, if it's in a movie or a song, they associate it with God leaving them. Right. You know, and, and it has that kind of psychological um, effect. Uh-huh. Um, and so they, that's how they condition themselves, um, which is a different kind of thing from somebody who is legitimately hearing voices in their head right. and should be seeking mental, um, you know, mental health um, treatments for a condition that they have mm-hmm. um, who is listening to the same kind of sermon mm-hmm. and they associate it with God mm-hmm. for the same reasons, mm-hmm. you know, but, th- but they're insane. <laughs> okay. So this is something that was shared by um, somebody that I loosely know. He's a friend of a friend and he's an ev- evangelical Christian and he posts some really kind of ridiculous things on Facebook sometimes. Yeah. Um, some kind of really out there stuff. Um, but he, he posted something um, earlier this week about depression. And I've wanted to talk about um, depression on the show before. Um, I've found articles in the past that talk about how religion has affected treatment, how... Um, Certain believers in, like, the Mormon church, for instance, um, will forego going to see a counselor because they mm-hmm. think that the uh, the mental condition of depression is spiritual rather than physical, uh-huh. right? Because that's kind of the way that the Mormon church paints that picture. They're, they're backing away from it now, but, but, like, growing up, like, I can remember times, like citing scriptures talking about how you're overwhelmed with grief and sorrow and anxiety and all these Mm -hmm. kinds of things. And that's because Satan is berating you and, you know, you need to become more in tune with the spirit and pray more and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, some people who legitimately have depression, like chemical depression, um, will, will read stuff like that or hear stuff like that and then think that they need to do something spiritual rather than talk to a counselor. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's problematic. It's caused a lot of problems for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Um, so let me just start by saying, if you have depression or think you might have depression, go talk to a counselor. Please seek medical help. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, even if you think it might be spiritual, please go talk to a counselor. Yeah. Um, so, so I wanted to read um, this person's um, take on depression because I thought it was, you know, kind of in line with what I was just mentioning. You know, like this the idea that that depression is um, spiritual which I find to be harmful. So he says, depression is real. If you are fighting it, you are not alone. Depression seems to have been the bane of many of life's great leaders. In the Bible, 
Moses, Elijah, David, and Job all had to deal with it. Wait, wait, where does he get that from? How does he know they were depressed? He's drawing this based on the idea that um, they say things like, woe is me, or I I feel sorrow, like in their narratives. You know, like Job, for instance. Like he made several comments about how awful his life is. Um, Your life is pretty awful because you lost everything. Yeah. Job (laughs) probably has a legitimate claim to depression. Right. (laughs) Um, Anyway, that's just what I assume. He doesn't like really go into detail on that. Yeah, because that's not something that's ever, like, taught, right? I don't remember ever no, I, hearing but, things but like again, that. No, but again, he's an evangelical Christian. You grew up Mormon, so, like, they, right. they focus on different things in these biblical stories. Um, okay, I'm focusing too much on this. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Move on. In the secular world, Sir Ch- uh, Winston Churchill used to call depression his black dog, and Ernest Hemingway referred to it as the artist's reward. President Abraham Lincoln battled depression and suicide all his adult life. I don't know how true that is. Yeah, how, what? I mean, he was in a very difficult cite situation. Cite your sources, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, he, he doesn't cite anything. Not, well, he, he does later, when, he's, when he gets down to the scriptures. Well, that's not citing sources. No. That's just using quotes. Right. Um, there were times when, for his own safety, Lincoln would not allow himself to carry a knife for fear that he would hurt himself or worse. Uh, read about Lincoln during <laughs> turning to the Bible. Sorry, let me read that again. Read about Lincoln turning to the Bible to relieve his depression. Okay, where? Um, let the scriptures help you, just like they have helped so many of us. Sometimes depression can be a purely spiritual thing. Read this. Um, depression is a spirit. It must be fought with the word of God. So I think he's getting this from like a pamphlet. Depression is, the, is a spirit. Um, at least I'm hoping that's the case. <laughs> he may have actually suffered from lifelong depression. Lincoln? Yeah. That's, that was the thing? Apparently. Oh, I think he's getting his information from Wikipedia. Oh, okay. But still, I mean, there's a whole lot of other sources on here that say Abraham Lincoln's melancholy, like NPR and stuff. So it was probably a legitimate thing. Okay. Sorry. It, I just really that, wanted to fact check that real quick. It, it wouldn't surprise me if he was. No. I mean, con- consider like like his situation, like yeah. the abolition of slavery that was going on, the Civil yeah. War. Well, know. lifelong depression. I mean, he started suffering it then when he was like a teenager. But that makes sense, too. I mean, he was right. a poor farm boy. Right. With little education, and he wanted to be a lawyer. And and no real treatment for depression yeah, at the exactly. time. Like, treatment back then was turning to the Bible. Yeah. Lots you know. of people probably suffered from depression. Yeah. And probably self-medicated mm-hmm. by reading inspirational quotes from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Or drinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. <laughs> okay, so this is, I assume, from this pamphlet thing that he's citing. Um, depression is the physical and emotional result of hopelessness, the feeling of hopelessness. Okay. Okay. We live in a world devoid of hope, and depression is the emotional product of that reality. Ugh, the world is not devoid of hope. <laughs> Red flag. Whenever you see anything, say that the world is just hopeless or just awful. 
just know well, just just go read some Stephen Pinker. Go read his book, The Better Angels of Our Nature, where he talks about how all of that stuff is factually uh, incorrect. Um, he <laughs> talks about how, um, let's see, like death rates and mortality rates are better than they ever have. Yeah. Uh, nutrition is better than it's ever been. Science is better than it's ever been. You know, like people are living yeah. happier lives, longer lives. Yeah. They're getting less disease. Like, I mean, like the very fact that people are trying to change things shows that there's hope in the world. Right. He only thinks that, that he only thinks that the world is devoid of hope because people are turning away from God. Yeah. The only thing, so, so continuing, the only thing that will actually change one's life sufficiently as to destroy the cause mechanics and effects of depression is God's hope and his word of hope. Awesome. Yeah. Super duper, right? That's the only thing that will help depression. Thanks counselor. The answer (laughs) is to get God's hope back inside of you. Get his hope back inside of you, huh? Yeah. That's what she said. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. (laughs) Are we about to start going down the road? use the explicit tag <laughs> I couldn't help it we've avoided it thus far if my name was Eli Bosnick I would have used something different <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> okay I'm just going to leave that can of worms, worms closed. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> google it um, hope will let you again see the future positive possibility of your life that's a terrible sentence. Hope will let you again see the future positive posit- possibility of your life. The future positive possibility? Yeah, of your life. Without seeing it... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, he is terrible to read. Well, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure he's pulling this from somebody else. Um, okay. Without seeing it, you will have no motivation or strength. Without seeing hope? Without seeing the future positive possibility of your life. Oh. <laughs> you will have no motivation or strength. The good word of God and the good word of others to you can change the outlook and condition of your heart. Fight for God's outlook with all you have. Fight it with the word of God. Also confess sorry. Also confess the scriptures of hopelessness. Confess the scriptures on hopelessness. Wait, read that again? Also confess the scriptures? Yeah. Also confess the scriptures on hopelessness. Hopelessness is capitalized. I think this is one of those instances where evangelicals use a a religious term differently than Mormons do, and so I don't really know what he means by confess. Huh. Like consult? Maybe. I think... Like, confess that you're hopeless, and so now consult on hopelessness? I don't know. Again, <laughs> I, I don't always understand what evangelicals mean when they use right. certain words. Yeah. I think that's what's going on with this one. Um, anyone who is among the living has hope. Okay. Among the living. <laughs> <laughs> so once you die, you have no hope. I, I guess that's true. <laughs> well, kind of, but if they believe in an afterlife, depending on what religion you are, you still think that there's hope for them in the afterlife. Just okay. saying. 
Now, if we're going the route of zombies, mm-hmm. I can see where that makes sense. <laughs> you must be reading The Walking Dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, he said, among the living. Mm-hmm. That just, yeah. It's a funny phrase to use. Yeah. Um, God's hope encourages, motivates, and keeps you on the road to faith, peace, and victory. And if you suffer from deep ongoing depression, seek out and get help. So he's really close to make, making a good point right here. Right, but that, doesn't that counter everything that he just said? Well, he doesn't say what kind of help. Oh. See. Fair and, point. And, that, and that's the problem that I have with this, is that at no point does he say, um, you should go see a counselor. Mm. Um, he just says, get help, which might mean just talking to a priest or a bishop or something like that. Or read the scriptures I've provided for you below. Right. Okay. Um, and please read this. Helping others is God's prescription for depression. Okay, maybe... You're just redirecting the problem at that point, though. Hold on. So the thing that I have been reading the last couple paragraphs, I think was him, but I think he was just summarizing the thing that he was citing. Depression is a spirit. That would explain the poorly formed sentences. Yeah. Okay. So he's citing another pamphlet or something um, again without any links to anything helping others is God's prescription for depression okay so you can so he's saying that you can actually treat your depression through serving other people yeah if but you that's serve, just redirecting the problem right if you serve other people then you won't have depression that is not true no that's not how depression works right <laughs> this whole thing is not how depression works yeah. You know? yeah like real depression people can't get out of bed yeah. They can't help themselves. How are mm-hmm. they going to help other people? Yeah. And yeah. It's just it's a it's a misunderstanding of what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Um because there's lots of like chemicals in the brain that are out of balance right. that that can lead to depression. And if that's the case, then no matter how many um people you serve or how many soup kitchens you volunteer at or how many scriptures you read or how many times you pray to God, it's not going to fix the chemicals in your brain. It's it's just not right. You know, that's not how chemicals in the brain work. Um, he goes on, send me a comment. We love you and we want to help you. You are important and you have value. You are not alone with God's help. You will climb out of this hole. Um, he had me until the end there. So the whole idea of reaching out to other people, um, recognizing the value that you have, um, that other people see in you, like that's that's good. Like that that can be that kind of little bit of crutch of motivation to get you to seek out real help. Okay. Um, I just hate that he has to throw in, with God's help, you will climb out of this hole. Um, God has nothing to do with it. Serotonin levels have something to do with it. <laughs> Um, and then he just cites a whole bunch of scriptures that are about leaning to God and um, seeking God for refuge and everlasting arms and yeah, I don't know. Stuff like this makes me depressed, ironically, because <laughs> because again, they're they're not helping. Like no, they're, they're, they're making things worse if people follow that advice. Yeah, they're dancing around the issue. They're not. Encouraging people to find real help. Well, and it's like you said, it's a obvious misunderstanding of what depression is. Yeah. It's like there have been times in my life where I would say, yeah, I was depressed. But mm-hmm. looking back, it's like I wasn't depressed. I was 
in like down. a funk. I was yeah. down. I was unhappy with the way my life was going at mm-hmm. a certain point. But yeah. you know, a few days later, right. something great happens, and I'm okay again. You know, like it's right. not. It wasn't real depression. Well, uh, okay, so that reminds me of right before I stopped going to church. I was feeling a lot of guilt for various things. Um, you know, uh, you know, things like you go to church and they tell you to feel guilty about certain things. So you do. Right, so you do. And then, um, also toying with the idea that I didn't want to go to church anymore. So I was feeling guilty about that and, you know, feeling depressed. And there were times when I was pretty low. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really sad about certain things. And then finally I decided to pull the trigger and just walk away from the Mormon church, um, take a break. And, and then I started doing research into atheism and skepticism and, and learned a bit about Mormon church history and, and then came to the conclusion that I had been an atheist all along and that I was just beating my, myself up because I was trying to conform to you know, expectations of my family and all these things and, and friends and stuff. Um, and when I made that realization um, that I was an atheist and that I didn't believe in God, all of these things that I felt guilty about left me. Right. And I no longer felt depressed about it. Right. You know? Yeah, and uh, you know, and and this idea that uh, you know God is the prescription for depression and all this kind of stuff. If if somebody had given that to me at that time, um, it just would have made it worse. You know, totally. It would have fed into the guilt that I was already feeling. Yeah, uh, guilt for things that I shouldn't have felt guilty about. Mm-hmm. You know, right. Um. So again, go see a counselor. Go see a counselor. Not a religious counselor. <laughs> Not a religious counselor. Go see a real therapist or psychologist or psychiatrist. Uh-huh. You know, there's lots of options. Yep. You know. Anyway, that's what I got. Cool. Um, you got something else? Sure. So this one is just kind of silly. It's from uh, Greg Trimble. We've mentioned him a few times on the podcast. He's a Mormon blogger. Um, and this little blog that he posted is called A Letter from a Dad to Carl's Jr. and the Women in Their Commercials. <laughs> so, basically, I mean, he starts right. off just by establishing how much he loves Carl's Jr. and their food and how much he used to eat it, yada, yada, yada. Right. <laughs> Says that he hasn't eaten there in the last two years because of their commercials. I just, I just had... A, a flashback to Arrested Development where Tobias is eating at, uh, I think, Burger King with Carl Weathers. Uh-huh. And they just keep making little plugs about how awesome Burger King is. You can get re- free refills. Oh. <laughs> it's a wonderful establishment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who paid for that episode? <laughs> right. Um, let's see. So Carl's Jr. commercials tend to have scantily clad women eating very large burgers with right. sauces dripping down. Mm-hmm. They are a little sexualized. Yeah. But that is kind of the demographic they're aiming for, right? Right. <laughs> Men that are going to respond to this. Yeah. Anyway, so this guy has stopped eating at Carl's Jr. because of their commercials. He thinks that they're sneaking porn in 30-second increments mm-hmm. um, in between good, wholesome programs... Like sports. Like sports. Yeah. Um, he relates an Which experience is, that his... Nobody ever associates um, you know, sexual stuff with sports. That right. never happens. Right. 
sports on TV <laughs> may look clean, but sports in real life are not clean. Right. Well, I mean, look at, uh, you know, one of the classic sports is boxing, right? Mm-hmm. And they always have, like, the girls in bikinis holding up the round signs, you know. Yeah, but guys like this aren't going to let like their that. kids watch boxing. Yeah. They're just not. Or cheerleaders. Like, this is probably a basketball game or a football game that they're watching. Right, but even football games will have cheerleaders. Yes. You know. They will. But quite often, depending on the season, they are wearing more clothing. <laughs> yeah, but I'm just saying, like... like I know. I know what you're saying. That's why this article is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. It's just a little, a little bit more overt in the advertisements yeah. he's referencing. Yes. Yeah. Um, so he relates an experience that his wife had while taking their two kids to a restaurant. Okay. Probably like McDonald's or something where there's a play place. Right. But there's, there are TVs everywhere. You know, programs are always being shown on the TVs, but mm-hmm. usually in family-friendly areas, there's something like a sports game or like a fishing show or something lame like that, right? Right. So they're eating their dinner or whatever, and they're watching the game, completely enthralled. They can't tear their eyes away from it, yada, yada, yada. Right. And suddenly it go, cuts to a commercial of Carl's Jr. with these two scantily clad women nigh unto nakedness, which is what he says, um, like stumbling over each other to get to Carl's Jr. newest, Carl's Jr.'s newest burger. And so he says that this commercial is teaching his young daughter that he, that she should be sexually promiscuous with women and that she um, should display her body to the world while simultaneously telling his son that two meats are better than one, i.e. two women are better than one. Right. Therefore, so. polygamy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oddly enough, I never thought about that. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. I, I just went about as far as like a threesome or being unable to commit to one woman. Right. You know, playing the field or whatever. Right. Um, Which is probably where he was trying to take it. Yeah. But anytime a Mormon brings up two women are better than one, you cannot help <laughs> but make the association with polygamy. Which is why it's weird that I didn't. But anyway... <laughs> So, basically, I just think, I mean, it's, I do remember feeling that Carl's Jr.'s um, ads were a little too sexual. Uh-huh. Part of that was because I was Mormon. Right. And so I was trained to think that. There's that psychological conditioning. Yeah. And, I mean, the <laughs> other side of me was, like, these poor women have to display themselves and eat burgers that they're not actually going to be able to finish <laughs> in order to remain looking like that. Right. So there's that kind of conflict but although to be fair most people in food advertisements don't actually eat the food that they're right looking like they're eating yeah. right they take a bite and then spit it off once right. the camera stops right. yeah. yeah no i i totally get that i mean they have to take do they have to do like 50 takes or yeah whatever, you know yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they'd be eating like five burgers every day right. <laughs> yeah <laughs> ultimately though if this is not a problem for carl's jr you right. know i mean they're advertising the way that gets them money they're mm-hmm. a business. That's what they're supposed to do. Right. The ultimate problem is that he is this man, Greg Trimble, is not having the appropriate conversations with his children. He's if your children him. are taking away these messages, it's because they aren't learning from the appropriate sources what sex really is. Right. That's why they need sexual education. That's why abstinent-only mm. programming or <laughs> programs aren't working not because they are not learning what sex is. Mm. If you teach a girl that. You know, it's better to be modest, like, I mean, they try to do in the LDS culture, but it's okay to expose certain parts of your body. Like, Uh there are 
middle there's a middle ground that they that they can approach you right. don't ha- it's not one of two extremes in either case right you know you teach the son that it's okay to you know date more than one woman until finally settling down and then you expand on the idea that it's better to be monogamous you know i don't know i just feel like mm. the problem is in the home the parents need right. to be having the conversations they need to not avoid talking about sex and you know painting it as this awful thing yeah and that's the approach that that uh i experienced um like growing up um you know my parents almost every year almost took me out of the sex ed portion mm-hmm. um they never actually did but they talked about it every time um and a big part of that is just if you talk about in their mind, like if you talk about sex, they're going to want to have sex. They're going to want to have sex. Yeah. It's like, they're going to want to have sex either way. It's just, if you yeah. talk about it in a healthy educational kind of way, they're going to at least understand it. Yeah. And they can make an educated guess on whether right. or not they're ready to have sex or not. Right. And they can make that choice for themselves Yeah, rather than having somebody on the outside impose their, their principles on them. Right. Because then it becomes an act of rebellion mm. or an act yeah. of submission, mm. <laughs> you know? I'm not yeah. doing it because I'm told not to, or I'm doing it because you told me not to. Yeah. And I want to know what it is. Yeah. And yeah, like, like Mormons especially are, are good at that. They just avoid talking about sex yeah. to the point where when you actually are allowed to have sex for the first time, a lot of people don't know what they're doing. They don't know how to right. have sex. Right. Uh, they, don't, they don't know what the different body parts are sometimes, mm-hmm. um, or the mechanics of what's supposed to go on. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, just, just avoiding the conversation isn't going to fix it. No. And it's not going to help anybody. Right. Because we're hardwired to mm-hmm. want that. Yeah, education is always better than, than perpetuating ignorance. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's basically all I wanted to talk about on that. Okay. It's just a letter. Open letter to Carl's Jr. <laughs> Take your commercials off and you'll gain four more people to eat at your restaurants. Right. Or keep your commercials and maintain the millions that are already going. <laughs> right. Four people <laughs> eating at your restaurant is not going to make a big difference. Right. All right. Well, I think that's our show. Thanks for listening. If you would like to contact us, you can email us at skepticsquaredpodcast at gmail.com. And you can check out our show's blog at www.skepticsquaredpodcast.blogspot.com. And we'll see you next time on the Skeptic Squared Podcast. Bye now.